0: i'll do some pro bono
1: i'll make it pro bueno (laughs) (laughs) don't use that (laughs) bonus content (laughs) Games Show, recorded in London in Brick Lane. I'm joined by the GHG crew, along with erstwhile games journalist, narrative designer, and pop DJ, Cara Ellison. Hello, Cara. Hello. <laughs> What's good?
2: Um, It's snowing, so it's very pretty outside. That is a plus for me anyway.
1: How it, you're still in Scotland, is that right?
2: That's right, yeah. I'm um, in gorgeous fife countryside currently
1: mm-hmm. what's that like i've I visited once during winter and i am not interested in repeating that
2: <laughs> <laughs> um to be honest with you i like winter i have fun during winter and i enjoy winter weather mainly because you get to be indoors and warm and then you're like haha mm-hmm. everything outside is cold and so you, you know it's like a kind of you know, one-upmanship game with, you know, animals that live outside, you're like, haha. ha. Um, but yeah, uh, Scotland is pretty chilly around about this time of year. So uh, yeah, I'll wrap up for basically and stay indoors is my advice.
0: Winter is a great excuse to, to consume the media that you want to consume, you know, like when it's nice outside, like today, I feel guilty for staying inside. But if it's raining or snowing, well, you know, I have no choice but to watch two seasons of The Expanse, you know, like the, the universe is forcing me to. That
2: is exactly why I like it, actually. I like excuses to feel like not lazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's pretty fun. Um just kind of making up those excuses but also you do tend to put on a little bit of weight during during that time so I've been upping my exercise considerably because I'm just like oh no like I I feel like my my muscles are like atrophying so
1: is there a, a is there any media that you feel um is more appropriate to watch during um during the winter season we just did um a show about the sort of stuff that we uh tend to tend to play and uh, and watch uh, that we can only do when it's cold like um i can't play like the long dark or anything where like you know the weather is very deliberately oppressive uh in the summer just doesn't work the tone's completely off
2: yeah i mean i have actually um when i lived in japan i had pirated a number of british christmas tv uh episodes um among them um uh stuff like the father ted christmas episode or the snowman or or things like that just because i knew that i would miss them when i moved to japan Mm -hmm. so i actually had like a hard drive full of these like classic british um you know (laughs) like the blackadder christmas special and stuff Uh like that and so i'd taken that with me um and i felt like i was entitled to it you know because i paid my tv license dutifully so um (laughs) even while you were there Yeah, no, no, no. But, like, I was like, you know, BBC, please don't get onto me for being illegal. Because technically, it's not illegal if you pay for your TV license all your life, but probably is. I don't know. But basically, uh, yeah, no, I got very uh, homesick during Christmas, especially. which, um, if you do live in Asia, I recommend um, heading to Hong Kong uh, because they, uh, if you're British and you like go to Hong Kong, there's a Marks and Spencers so you could buy a mince pie. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm sensing a, a whole narrative, a whole story that we can concoct out of this. That's the game I want to play. <laughs>
2: going to hong kong for a mince pie yeah (laughs) and they also do so japan i struggle to find my brass eyes so again marks and spencers in hong kong will do you right
1: okay do you ever do um the uh, kfc on christmas thing
2: oh so i did not but a lot of my students that i was teaching in japan they were like kara sensei you have to go to kfc (laughs) and get a roast chicken and i was like what are you talking about
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but like you have to book like months in advance, right, to be able to get KFC on Christmas because like of a fantastic marketing campaign that uh, Kentucky that Fried Chicken
2: did. Yeah, that they basically convinced Japanese people that that's what happens in America at Christmas time, and that's a tradition oh, okay. amongst Americans. And they were completely convinced. I mean, maybe some some people know that it's not true, and it is just like a japan only tradition but in my experience generally speaking christmas tends to be um a romantic holiday in japan and the real holiday is the new year celebrations
1: a friend of mine um from korea once told me that um because it's about like being a couple right like you know you spend it with them whoever you're dating that um if you aren't uh seeing somebody over christmas um you are probably just going to be like watching home alone right like the movie home alone because it's on tv so they call it spending christmas with kevin
0: which I,
3: I <laughs> there's another really game good. there's
0: another game i want to mm. play we, we've got a narrative <laughs> designer here so I'm, I'm ready for two very like cute indie jam games based on these concepts
1: so that is yeah. why we had you on the show um, ah. we've been having a lot of conversations about narrative design uh, in our Hitman 3 reflections which should be out by the time this uh, this is up um, we talk about how the interstitial sections between levels feel like afterthoughts and that they're a bit like the, the, the payoff at the end of the game is a little bit unearned um, and it seems as if the creative team they knew that they had to reach a certain crescendo um, but didn't actually think about the steps involved in getting there uh, and it reminded me of what I always heard about narrative design in games which is that it, it works differently really from every other medium where I'm, just from my perspective as a critic and from what I've read that for the most part the writer is one of the last people that comes onto a game uh, for the most part as I hear um, is that accurate to your experience or am I completely off base?
2: I mean, yeah, that's often correct. Like yeah, you might be one of the last people to come onto the project. But there are other sort of production um, considerations to take into account. I think one of the things is that you might you know, you might might be on the team from the beginning, but the bigger problem with games is that it takes a really long time to prove out gameplay. Um, mm-hmm. Gameplay being a super uh, unuseful term for a lot of things. Um, but basically greed.
1: Film yeah,
2: book, read, and film, much, But basically, prototyping fun, fun things to do in a game, what we might call affordances in the industry, um, like affordances or what you can do mechanically in a game. Um, take a really long time to prove out and sometimes they might not work and you might have to just throw them away which actually means that everything has to be thrown away like stuff like levels that you've made specifically for those affordances need to be thrown away Mm -hmm. and so I think probably what you're talking about is an issue where and obviously, I don't know anything about Hitman 3. I haven't even played it. I played Hitman, but I haven't played this one. And I don't know anything about the production of the game. But it could, in fact, be that there were lots of narrative designers um, actually on that project from the beginning. It's just that they didn't actually know what the levels would look like um, or where they would be or what the situations were going to be in the levels before they actually made, like wrote the story. So, um, you know, being a narrative designer is a lot like kind of running alongside the moving car, passing script through the window kind of deal. So a lot of it is actually kind of done in this weird panic because you don't actually know what's going to be concrete um, for a lot of the time of the production. And so you're kind of, you know, running to catch up constantly. Um, So it could just be that they had a structure in mind, it didn't work out, and they had to retroactively, you know, stick something in there. it could be anything, really. It's all production, unfortunately, all production and budget.
0: Do you? Um, uh, it's interesting because we've had conversations also on this channel of uh, you know we, we I think we try to be quite quite critical. Sometimes that means that we can be a little harsh. But um, I I myself am a fan of many many games that are extremely broken or, or games that are famously understood as uh, narratively uneven and and confusing. And I think it's interesting what you're saying about scriptwriters and narrative designers kind of having to catch up because sometimes when you play these games, you kind of... Uh, uh, one that stuck in my mind because I've I forced myself to play it recently is Final Fantasy Fifteen, And you get the sense that there's moments in these stories where there is a lot of care. Like there was clearly somebody or people who thought a lot about the interactions between certain characters or developing a, a specific quest or a specific scenario that feels uh, very emotional and very, you know, melodramatic, but in a good way. And then, and, you know, and then two seconds later, they're like... All right, go collect twenty toads, go to the swamp and collect that. you know, and they're so tiny, I can't find them. What? Like y- you get these very uneven things. and I wonder what that must feel like, you know, is there have you you know, maybe you don't need to get specific about specific companies or games, but just in general, like have you had experiences where you felt sort of more integrated into the design process and less, you know or in terms of best practices where you can actually see, you know that your you or your team, like the stuff that you write and work on actually, kind of gets integrated into the game in a way where it doesn't feel like the player has to search for, you know, the, the good stuff. It's kind of there throughout.
2: Yeah, I mean, so one of the things um, that can be frustrating is that people's ideas of genre can get in the way of the kind of story you want to tell. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it, it can be that, you know, things like, you know, well, there, have to, there has to be collectibles and then the narrative designer has to think of a reason why you might interrupt <laughs> the story to go off and get some collectibles and that's not, <laughs> but it's a, it's a genre consideration that mm. often, like, you know, the expectations of a particular genre will get in the way um, and it's mainly because, you know, they want a particular audience to buy the game and again, it's like, you know, it's, mm. it's very much like a, a, a kind of sales and marketing thing. Um, And that's why you get lots of jarring moments, Uh, but it can also be things like um, the hierarchy in a lot of AAA uh, companies tends to be like creative director, gameplay director, everyone else. (laughs) And the creative director and gameplay director actually have a lot of narrative responsibilities, but they might not really consider them narrative responsibilities, and so they might often make decisions without even really talking about it with the rest of the staff. And they might not consider, um, for example, actually you know discussing it with narrative or discussing it with anyone before the decision is made simply because they have the major responsibility for the whole game. They know what's expected of them from the publisher. And so you know often the publisher will be like, well, we expect this to happen. And so the creative director or the gameplay director might make it happen. And then everyone else just has to be like, okay, well, we have to get on board with this. Um, And in some ways that's fair because, again, like they are taking the whole responsibility of the entire project on their shoulders and they're responsible for the budget of it. But it also might mean that like things like um, a gameplay design goes into the game that doesn't make any narrative sense whatsoever. And you're like, well, now what do I do? (laughs) Does it fit with my ideas of the characters? So how am I going to do this? Um,
1: you've just spent 20 hours telling people (laughs) that like frogs don't exist in this universe and then yeah exactly right and then a
2: ton of frogs and you're like well now what do I do and you're like wow this is the only frog I've ever seen in my entire life and that's why you get these moments where characters are like saying stuff that is ridiculous and it's often like you know often players be like well this is really bad writing it's like it's not bad writing it's just Mm -hmm. bad design And a lot of the bad design stuff that comes through that narrative has to deal with is actually just to do, again, with production and budget. And a lot of it's like a knock-on effect. It's not really to do with any one person being evil or terrible or wrong. It could do with a little more communication, I would say. But communication amongst, like, sometimes 200 to 300 people is really hard. So, again, on the scale that AAA games are made, like, I don't feel like it's really really hard to hurt hurt those cats basically
1: <laughs> this is something that i'm i'm so glad we're having an opportunity to talk with you about this because we've been saying stuff like this for a while without really any any backing like the idea that if a game is being made by 300 people does it lose some kind of authorial vision just as a result of the amount of people like do you think that's a uh, an inevitable consequence of the scale or do you think that there are things that can be done about that
2: I personally feel like the better games, the stronger narratives, um, the usually in AAA, those come from um, game directors or creative directors who are also writers or who are narrative designers themselves or who have bigger narrative chops and take on most of the narrative responsibilities. Now, that's really hard because when you're a creative director... You have to do the management and admin and budgets as as well. And that takes up like so much of your time because you're communicating constantly with the whole team about what you want to see in the design. And that's really hard to be able to be the writer and do those duties as well. Um, so it's a very high pressure role if you do get that role. Um, but, um, And I'm going to say a lot of names here that you might not be happy with me about, but the reason you get a stronger authorial flavor in things like Ken Levine's games or Kojima's games is because they take that narrative role more seriously, I would say, than other people. They might not be like the world's most amazing stories, but the reason you get more flavor from them is because they actually personally invest themselves in the stories that they make. Um, They don't have control over every facet of the story and i would say personally i would prefer that um maybe kojima thought through his dialogue a a little bit more but
0: (laughs) maybe even his characters
3: sometimes i thought you were gonna say i would prefer if he had less control (laughs) because like
2: (laughs) you know what i think that kojima is like one of the world's best game designers but i feel like his stories are not my favorite thing (laughs) so Um, well, it's interesting
0: what you're saying as well, because you almost think like I'm trying to think of even just this last year, Um, you know, something like Hades was given like a lot of, I think, uh, rightful like praise for its uh, design and its story. And, you know, that's a studio that's Well, I, I watched the documentary recently about the about the game. I don't remember the exact size, but I think it's it's like under 20 people. Yeah. right? it's it's quite small. So there's like there's a closer, you know, that whole like indie environment of like you can you and the other people working on the game, presumably are a lot closer together and there's a lot more communication in that sense. Yeah. And then you have examples like studios, like you're saying, like, as you were speaking, I was thinking of uh, Rockstar, for example, you know, I actually haven't played the, the Red Dead 2, uh, Redemption 2, but from what I've heard, you know, everyone's like, oh man, it's so amazing and immersive and this. And I think whatever, the, wherever you stand on that, I think one of the reasons they can kind of be that way is because they have this like reputation kind of to uphold as like this, this is what they do, they do these very big worlds, and they spend a lot of time in them and expanding them and making them feel immersive. Whereas I don't know, I don't know if every company has that uh, either reputation or expectation to fill. I mean, even if you think about, you know, the big elephant in the room of cyberpunk, like, you know, that game also had some positive moments some positive stories. But like, you know, if you look back at The Witcher 3, and what everyone said about why The Witcher 3 was so great partially in, in a narrative sense was because they took their time you know they took their time and they really you know that what that wasn't like a crunch environment <laughs> and they you know all the side quests all the stories like it was very character driven so I, I wonder if that's an aspect do you think that maybe the once you build that reputation like Kojima he walks into the room and it's like oh shit it's Kojima you know we're gonna make a real story here there's an expectation and maybe even from the investment side or from the business side they they understand that whereas in another kind of game they might be like all right where's the
2: i think there's two things here that we don't usually talk too much about in games which um has been on my mind recently a lot but it's like it's basically you need two things in order to in order to be a really good game um some elements that are not often talked about are that first of all you need to have a team that knows how to work together really well Um, and when you make a new team um you know there are so many things you have to iron out in order to be able to actually even make a game. In that beginning stage when you're making a fresh team, they don't know how to work together. They don't know how to communicate together. They don't know um, what is expected of them. They don't know what the standards are. They don't know anything, right? And so when I look at Cyberpunk, I'm like, they're a new team. They're not the Witcher team. Um, mm. that That was what I looked at. the outside i don't know anything about it but i'm like this is a new team and it takes a while to be able to make anything in a new team And rpgs are one of the most frail genres you could ever work in because they need like 60 systems to work seamlessly well all together all at the same time and if one of them doesn't it's all screwed up so it's basically in in the kind of cyberpunk kind of element i'm just looking at like oh you know like maybe there's at that element, but the other thing is, like, trust. You need trust from the publisher, you need to trust your, like, uh, like, creative team, you need to trust, like, you know, your Kojima figure, or whatever, and if that isn't there, then, you know, you, you end up thinking, kind of second-guessing every decision you make, um, especially to do it, like, creatively, so there's that, and then there's, like, You know, there's a bunch of other things that come into play with communication as well. I mean, one of the things that, you know, looking at what I've just said with stuff like Red Red Dead Redemption 2 um, and Rockstar Games, that team has been working together for... I mean, since I... Well, I worked on GTA 4 and they were working on... They were making immersive worlds. You know, they have made so many immersive worlds before I even joined them. And so, like... There's like you know decades of of people working together there. Well, um, you know the Heusers have been there for a really long time, and so you know there's they they have all worked together for like a really long time, and so they they already know how to work together, what they do and do not want to do in production, the decisions they want to be in control of, and the decisions that they can um, let other people make. So there's like a lot of stuff there where I'm like, okay, the reason why they can they get, they've got the trust from their publisher. They've got their, uh, you know, ready-made team. They know how to do this kind of game. They know how to make it. They've got the staff already. Like those are all like super safe bets. Um, and I know from like pitching to publishers myself, they always look for like a pre-existing team because it reduces the risk massively. Um, they want to see what you've done before basically. Um, so, um, Yeah, like, I would say that, like, all of those things are really, really important. With Hades, like, what I look at is, like, I, you know, I'm friends with Greg, and I think his work is wonderful. And I think that when he wrote Hades, he'd already worked with that team. And so he probably had the confidence to go to them and go, like, well, if we made a roguelike, I could write a narrative that actually gets richer the more you die. Um, and that's probably the pitch he went to them with the rest of his team with. And they were like, cool, okay, well, can you prototype it? And Greg's like, sure. And then they probably proved it out in a small demo. And they were like, cool, well, this is awesome. Why don't we just go with that? And so that's possible in a smaller team where you're like, I've got an idea for a thing. We've done it before, but in a different way. Why not try it this way? Um And it's really, really cool to be able to do that. I definitely did it on Void Bastards because me and Ben, the creative director, worked together like that um, in Void Bastards as well.
1: So Void Bastards was your first experience with that sort of design correct like a small independent studio
2: yeah i mean definitely although i've been on productions that actually didn't come to fruition before on the independent side um obviously i'm not allowed to talk about them but um it was the just first... game design as right. a whole right <laughs> like that's most work. people's careers <laughs> right it's <laughs> like most of the majority of the work that you do as a game designer is done behind an nda and no one ever finds out about it <laughs>
1: <So>. <laughs> how many people do you know who have had like a 20-year career and have never shipped anything
2: oh my god so many in fact you know um you know brian mitsuda made the original bloodlines and then he did he he worked on like a million games And then none of them came out (laughs) and no one saw his work. And then I think he did Dad State, uh, which is like something he made on $300,000, which is like so little money. If you know about the expense of games, like that's so little money. Um, And um, and those are the only two games that he has on his credits, I think. Um, And he's been in the games industry for over 20 years.
0: It's I mean, gonna. Don't worry. It's gonna be like the GoldenEye leak that just happened. You know, just t- ten, fifteen years later, it's gonna come out, and all of a sudden, people are gonna be like, "Oh my god, this like brilliant designer! Look at what we've been missing." That,
1: it's weird though, because <laughs> the GoldenEye case is such a um, such a strange way that games just don't work like that. Like they had a like they had a proven commodity. They went to the trouble of producing that, and then it just got yeah. held up by rights and licenses and stuff like that. Like there will be a bunch of games that these people have worked on that probably only about 20% done right like it just isn't anywhere near it like it it couldn't leak because it doesn't exist really yeah I mean is that even accurate actually for the most part like I you know fucking critics like not actually even understanding how (laughs) games are made but like as as I understand it most games that don't come out like most of the things that actually make it a video game are done within the last two months right
2: right yeah that's fairly accurate I would say a lot of Games, their systems take a while to come online, um, and especially they take a while to be fun, so they might not be fun until, I mean, you know, there's stuff like, even the biggest of big AAA games that I've worked on have been absolute rubbish until maybe about the week before it was supposed to ship, so, like, that's how mm-hmm. risky game design is, is that it's so freaking risky all the time, so, um yeah and like that just means you need to have proved your team out and your publisher has to have the utmost confidence in you because if they don't right. then like they're just like what the hell is this <laughs> i can't so, see what so, it's supposed to be it's like looking at you know at half a painting you know someone has only done like their background and you're like what is this <laughs>
0: <laughs> so i was gonna con- just continuing on matt matt's uh, question: of, Do you want to tell us a little bit about the experience of Void Bastards?
2: Oh, sure. So, uh, Davy Readin, who made the Stanley Parable. He emailed me and said, Hey, Kara, do you know any narrative designers? I need to recommend some narrative designers. <laughs> and for then a you job. put on
1: like a mustache and then email back.
2: And I was just like, Davey, I am a narrative designer. <laughs> and he's like, Oh shit, well, do you want to work on this game with this guy who is, he made System Shock and he worked on Looking Glass games. And I was like, hell yeah! How did
0: I not know this?
2: Yeah. So, John Che, um, He was, like, basically Ken Levine's right-hand man. Um, And he is, like, a systems guy. Like, he's really, really great at just making game systems and making them fun. And he is, um, he's an Aussie. He's, like, a Chinese-Australian. And he's based in Canberra. And his creative director, um, because they made Card Hunter together, Ben Lee and uh, John Che made Card Hunter together. And Banley, also Chinese-Australian, so they um, their, their game company is uh, very tongue-in-cheek Blue Manchu, it's called. Um, and they just decided, hey, like, we want to make a game together, but we want to make it more like system shop. So it started off kind of like spaceships that you loot in space, and it was very space marine-y. And they were like, hey, we don't want it to be space marines all over again. We need it to be new. So, um, they interviewed me, John, um, Ben interviewed me first and he was like, okay, so tell me about yourself. What are you interested in? And we got into, um, the Red Dwarf novels. I don't know if you've ever read any of them, oh. but really got into Red That's Dwarf. very specific. Yeah, it,
1: absolutely. I've never read them, but I've seen the show a lot. And now that I'm drawing those conclusions, I absolutely see it. Like, yeah, yeah. it makes complete sense.
2: So the thing is, the Red Dwarf novels are actually um, a lot darker and actually, personally, I think a lot funnier than the TV show. Um, And that's kind of cool because the TV show itself, I think, is really funny. Um, But it's a lot darker in the novels because you get a little bit of psychological states of everyone on the ship. Um, And so Ben and I started talking about that, and we're like, why don't we make a game that's like that? It's just, like, the darkest humor we could possibly think of. And I was like, well, you know what's a real dark future is Theresa May gets her way, and she's in power (laughs) forever. Oh my god. I think about that a lot. It got worse.
1: um, About how, like, the narrative thread of Red Dwarf is that Lister, like he would go completely insane if he was left alone with somebody that he liked. Mm-hmm. So pairing him up with Rimmer means that he's incentivized to continue to like stay on a path because they fucking hate mm. each other. And that like is more intellectually stimulating than like just, you know, being around somebody that you actually like being around. <laughs> like I think about that all the fucking time.
2: Yeah. I'm on board. I, I definitely feel like, you know, um, I, I think that a lot of Red Dwarf is based on this idea, this very kind of British cynicism about who people are and what they need and want. And um, we, we went a little bit too far into thinking about politics for this game because when I look at the reviews for Boy Bastards, everyone's like, I love the swearing. Uh, and that's it,
3: right?
2: Because, <laughs> so, like, I wrote so many, like, I put so many details into that game that, like, pretty much no one has noticed. Um, so I pro- I don't, I don't speak-
0: Kara, you realize that you're, you're selling me very hard on this. <laughs> you know, like, our whole thing as a channel is, like, going too deep, like, almost to the point of, like, you know, being a bit off-putting into things. So, like, now that you've said this and you said System Shock and something else that you said, I'm like... <laughs> Oh my god. Like I, think I have to go um, play this and make a video about this. I I think we're gonna stream it. it.
1: Yeah, I think we're gonna stream I, it on the yeah. week this um this podcast comes out. So if you check out our yeah, Twitch channel, we'll that'll uh, be fun. we'll do a little playthrough. Um I, I really want to talk like it's almost inevitable, I think, with you writing it, but just how Scottish it manages to be. Like, not just in terms of phrase, but like it's it's just got an, an inescapable Scottishness, despite the fact that most of the team is Australian. Like how, yeah. do you think that there is a um an ineffable quantity of Scottishness that can be uh, <laughs> Scottish
0: connection conveyed well, even without language
2: yeah I mean it's a lot of it is to do with so Ben had actually moved to Brighton and um I used to live in Brighton as well um because it's the kind of it's a kind of small um queer centered kind of island <laughs> In England, where the politics is left leaning, and um and people are allowed to be gay, and that's the way Brighton works. And so I moved there because I was like, I hate London. I need to get out of here. Um and then so I kind of moved to Brighton because of that. And then uh and that's I think that's why Ben moved there too. And so he moved to London. I think he was chasing a girl. He said to me, he was like, I want to move to Brighton because I'm in love with this girl. And then of course she, I think she broke up with him and he was like, well, Brighton's cool anyway. so." Um, time to make a video game. Time to make a video game. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah. And we just started, I guess we just started talking about uh, like what would make the game different. And both of us were talk. we would talk about how you know, regional interest or anything that wasn't American or was really underrepresented in games. Mm. Um, and languages, especially like different languages and different vocabularies. So it was actually a deliberate choice to be not American and to mm. basically force people who play our video game to be confronted with different languages and outlooks. Because we started to be like, we don't really care if they don't understand what's being said. Um, because it might even be more alien to them that they don't understand, and it's in space. So, like, how much do we really care that they don't get it? Like, we don't, we just need a flavor that isn't, like, traditional system shock stuff, right? So that's kind of why we were doing it. But I don't want people to be like, oh, she's making Scottish people into aliens. What, generally speaking, what we were thinking about doing was Introducing the idea that the rebels of the universe um, were people who were really nonconformist and especially with the pirates, that's what we were getting at is like the only way to break out of a bureaucratic system is to essentially be interpreted as being these rebellious kind of um, saboteurs or rebellious like, you know, uh, you know, It from from your point of view in the universe, the pirates are really scary and aggressive and um but they are for all intents and purposes they have broken out of the bureaucratic system you are in. They don't exist inside of it. So um we thought about who that would be and we were like, Well in a British dystopia that would be Scottish people so (laughs) I
0: I pulled up as you were talking, I pulled up my copy of Pirate Utopias. (laughs) I was like, Ooh, this sounds very apropos. I was gonna say actually, you're um this makes me think of the dub of Xenoblade Chronicles 2. I don't know if you've played it or heard it. No. But it is a very, very uh Albion is the wrong word, isn't it? Albion is just supposed to be I don't know the, all the British terms here, but it's a very British Isles focused dub because it has all all the characters, like you have northern and southern accents. I believe you have some like Irish sounding characters and Welsh sounding characters and all these things. And it's so interesting because Xenoblade Chronicles 2 has a lot of problems, for sure. But one of the things I kept seeing in like reviews and forums online was people being like, what's with these weird, like, oh my god, the English dub is so bad. Like, it's so horrible. And I was thinking to myself when I played it, I was like, this is actually a really good dub. Like, this is a unique dub and they actually, I don't know if it was for financial reasons or why they picked it originally. But I thought to myself, wow, they actually went the distance and this is, it just, you know, getting outside of that even typical like received pronunciation sort of like high fantasy way of doing things it just it, it's such a small choice but it does such a trick on your brain to put you in a different headspace into ter- in terms of what kind of fantasy or sci-fi world this is so i really i love that actually you're just selling me on the game more
1: <laughs> i'd read something about this recently about um localization um which i'm desperate to do a show on but for um like japanese games the kansai accent is um specific enough and the word choices are different enough from like the, the Tokyo um, like just standard way of speaking that when it gets localized into English often uh, they'll have like Welsh voice actors like it's in Dino uh, Kuni and I think um, Xenoblade as well like they, they make a very specific choice to kind of like make the distinction between characters that speak a certain way and characters right. that speak another even though they're speaking the same language um and i have yeah i have to imagine that that's probably why that is but like i don't know i i I find that really fascinating that it's still it's localization it's still the same language being spoken but the the distinction is relevant enough that it needs to be expressed even though it's harder to do
2: yeah i mean i think um what's interesting about yeah like about japan and and things that regional accents like a lot of the, um, yeah, like, as you say, Osaka, or there's this very specific way that Osaka people, uh, speak, and it's very, like, uh, if you imagine, I mean, Osaka's like Japan's Glasgow, so, uh, it, it, it's, okay. it's a very, uh, very, very thick accent, and it has its own vocabulary even. So um, there's a lot of different words you have to learn when you go there to be able to converse with people. It's called Osaka-ben. That's, like, how you talk there. And it's the gangster language. So it's all of the Yakuza's that you see in uh, Japanese movies. They have that kind of Osaka-ben way of speaking. And instead mm-hmm. of, like, bowing, they're like... Instead. <laughs> and that's how they like <laughs> greet you. And so there's like a kind of weird um different way of like kind of um even like holding your body in Osaka is different. So mm-hmm. I really like that localization brings those things into um into the kind of games world. But you know, and my blasters, we weren't really thinking about that so much. We're thinking about how, how we can actually literally crowbar our cultures. Into the game. Yeah. Um, so cool. Ben and I decided that the pirates are going to be Chinese Scottish because there's quite a large Chinese population in Glasgow, um, because they okay. came in for um shipbuilding and there's a sort of the big kind of Chinese population there. And so um we were like, well, Ben's Chinese and I'm Scottish, so how can we put our culture into these in a bigger way? So I actually asked around all of my uh, Cantonese-speaking friends, like, do you have any favorite swears in Chinese (laughs) that you can give me? (laughs) And my favorite was from my friend Jane. She worked on Firewatch and she told me that uh, in Cantonese, the worst swear is something like fall in the street. Because if you tell mm. someone that they should fall in the street, it not only hurts, but it's like publicly humiliating.
3: Mm, yeah, yeah. Yes. So
2: as a curse, really good, right? So um, so you will actually hear, I think you'll hear that insult um, somewhere in the, in the. I think it's in the pirates dialogue, where they'll tell you to, I think they tell you sometimes to fall in the street or I hope you fall in the street <laughs> or something or fall, fall in the, I can't remember, but basically I, I translated it from Chinese into scottish yeah. so they have scottish accents but they're chinese so that's that's all of the detail i put into the game that no <laughs> one <laughs> even really it's
1: like started. two weeks worth of meetings and it's a single line of dialogue right
2: exactly <laughs> and it's really it's like really embarrassing how little anyone who did a review of the game even noticed that it had a narrative like they were like this game has no story and i was like what <laughs>
3: yeah <laughs> I was like, that, it's that just reminds me of that meme where it's like it goes over the head and they're just like yeah. "Oh, yeah. cool guns like yeah yeah <laughs> And I also think that kind of speaks to the disconnect between like critics and journalists and like what they think of what a narrative is or what a story is. Like our idea of it is so far removed from what that actually means because somebody saying, oh yeah, there's no narrative in Voidbusters and it's like, The hell do you mean what the hell are you talking about like that's just not true i think that's really interesting
0: well and it's also interesting too because we've talked about this on air and just amongst ourselves that like i'm i'm sorry folks i've been playing it so i'm gonna go back to it (laughs) final fantasy 15 the development was reset twice right and the narrative like i read i went back to read reviews about it because i'm working on a a video and a piece on it and you read the narratives and like i I really think that there's i think you're you're hitting on something Kara, because there's there's a certain conception of like grand narrative design and like being impressed by these kind of large gestures to me, even as a final fantasy fan, you know, I'm spoiling the plot here. You know, I think the game is a, is a fucking mess just to put it bluntly. And it's not that there aren't good parts about it. It's just that it's interesting reading what the critics had to say. Cause I think there's a, there's this conception of like, well, but it has like these massive strokes and these cutscenes, And you know, it's almost like it would happen with final fantasy seven remake as well, which has its own problems. But, Then you get to the other side of things when you have a game that has maybe a different kind of structure, maybe even more of a game-like structure rather than like a movie-like structure where it's trying to force cutscenes down your throat every five seconds. And there's a conception of it like, oh, well, where is the story? Like, how do I find the story here? What's going on? And I almost like the idea of trying to turn that on its head and say like, well, if what games are good at is telling stories in a different way than other kinds of mediums, then, you know, I think maybe that's why, again, something like Hades was... even though it seems so obvious now in retrospect of like, oh yeah, roguelikes have been building to this point where they have been more and more narrative based. So you, you could just, you could make that into its own kind of narrative experience. It still felt like a revelation to people. They were like, whoa, this is like, I didn't know we could do things like this. But anyway, I'm just thinking out loud in the sense of it it sounds to me like that uh, you put a lot of effort into the world building and the the sort of the, the immersion of being in this, in this kind of environment and there's obviously story elements but that is isn't seen as narrative that's seen as like oh that's window dressing that's just like the thing that makes it possible for me to run around and shoot things v- versus thinking of that as like that's actually your your primary way of kind of getting into this world
2: yeah i mean it's difficult you know like like as she said you know it's it's hard for critics to have a vocabulary to talk about it basically um but um it, it does hurt a little bit, you know, because I think that the misunderstanding of narrative design is like, oh, she writes the words, but, like, narrative de- design is really what you do that t- gives you the story in the game. Like, it's the tools that give you who people are and why they're there and what they're doing there. And your experience of the world is very bound up in narrative. And so when you play bastards for example... I mean, it's frustrating a little bit for me to like see like the critical acclaim of Hades and then be like, well, we actually did a lot of what they did in Hades in mm-hmm. Voidmasters, but in a different way. We didn't use dialogue, which is why people didn't notice. Right. What we did was every time you die, a new character is generated and that character has a different um, kind of uh, trait, let's say. So the first Mm -hmm. character you get has a smoker's cough and that is annoying because you'll cough every so often and then the enemies will notice, right? But you remember Mm -hmm. that guy because he had a smoker's cough and you're like, wow, like when he, when he died, like I got a new person and that new person was over polite. So all of that monsters are like called Mr. and Mrs. and like, you know. Mr. Monster and Mrs. Monster, and like, that's my over polite character, right? And you have a good Mm -hmm. run with that one. And you remember everything that character did, because it was in a particular way, right? That all of the ways in which you play the game are essentially sculpted by what kind of character you get. That's narrative design. Like we sat down and we were like, what would make you remember a particular character? Because it doesn't feel like you'll remember their name, but you will remember the experience of playing them yeah. and that's narrative design. And there are no real lines there. That's just affordances. I.e. it's just yeah. like how you play the game and like the stats of like how you play the game and the feedback that the game gives you tells you who you are as a character. And that's narrative design. i like me and Ben sat down and we were like, how can we make it feel different every time you get a new character? Because you don't, we don't have time to put dialogue in no one wants to do reading in this kind of game. Mm-hmm. So how do how do we make a narrative without doing any of those things? Um, but also, the fact that people didn't really notice that it was a huge effort for us to do that is really kind of good. Uh, but it just means that, like, I wouldn't get the credit for it. Um, sure. So, uh, yeah, a lot of it is, like, and it is like, it. it's also distributed amongst the design team. It's not like I come up with the idea and then Ben does it or John does it. It's like John and Ben and I are talking one day and we're like, what sounds like a fun thing to do, you know? So yeah, it's again, like it's, it's because our roles are sometimes not, you know, completely defined that way, but it's also, it's not transmitted to critics either that, that's a kind of design that we purposefully did that was telling a story, I guess.
3: I think that is quite interesting because we were like we were talking about genres and stuff before. I think the expectation of like um kind of game players at the moment have changed so much. Like we're so used to things being spoon fed to us and being told explicitly everything. Whereas like I think it is a lot more a lot smarter to have things kind of communicated to you in a much more understated way but nowadays it's like well no the story is now you have to go and pick up these five frogs and yeah. that and and that's that's have been accepted as to... good i'm like no stop this that's not i <laughs> i cannot believe that this is the position that we're in now but it's so frustrating. I mean, it's frustrating for me. I cannot imagine how frustrating it must be for you. <laughs>
2: I mean, I think it's, it, to a certain extent, um, a lot of the grandstanding that the bigger budget games do is because people don't notice, if you don't grandstand, how good something yeah. is, if you see what I'm getting yeah. at. It's like, yeah. the reason that like everyone's like, Bioshock's the gold standard is because Bioshock, like... It's a narrative that like is really in your face. Like I am smart yes. and good and awesome, and this is epic, yeah. and like this I've is read epic a adventure. Book. And yeah, <laughs> and it's like there's like and and again like the Witcher is like that where it's like it's all based on books, and it's like this is epic. Like we know our world really well. Like you should notice these elements of our world. They really go out of their way to spend a lot of money on having you notice like how much of the story they've invested in. And again, I'm not, I'm not, this is like, not like shade or anything. I actually think like it takes a lot of skill and time and planning and money to be able to actually be like, what kind of, um, how noticeable do we want our narrative to be? Because in every game, like we just talked about at the beginning of our discussion, story is a huge risk because there are, like, a number of things that can derail a story from being good, uh, especially in a new team or especially when, like, you know, you haven't even proved your gameplay or a number of other, like, things. And so, essentially, when you put a bet on a narrative, it's a humongous risk. Um, Because, yeah, you could, like, I mean, things that have happened to me on AAA games include, like, whole levels have been deleted in the middle of the game, and then all the beats you planned all the way through those levels suddenly disappear, and then yeah. what do you do? You don't have any budget to re-record any lines, hardly. You don't know what the, how to get the characters from A to B between that gap. So it's a nightmare. And so, you know, you have to have... What I'm saying is you have to have big balls. You have to have real <laughs> big balls to do, a, like, an <laughs> epic story that points at itself and goes... This yeah. is an epic story because, like as you yeah. say, you know, and things like Final Fantasy, it can get weird because it might not hit properly, right? right?
0: Yes, but
1: sometimes those don't hit. actually.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's interesting what you say too because now that I'm thinking of it, I'm thinking of games like, um, for example, like Steamworld Heist or Steamworld Dig. These these games that you know, there's there's story for sure, but well, my my strongest memory of those games is. I think sort of what you were getting at, Kara, where in a way, like the fact that you initially don't notice it, it is a good thing because it means it's working. Mm-hmm. It means you're immersed. But if you, when I look back, like uh, SteamWorld Heist, for example, you know, it, it's like an XCOM light game, basically. You're going to these different levels and you're having these battles. But there's so much charm and like pizzazz, not only in the aesthetics, but in like the just the little conversations you have with your crew, you kind of learn oh, this one's, like, really uh, sassy, and, like, this one's very serious. And and you come, you know, you wear different hats. And, like, I remember being, like, oh, I got to get that hat so I can, like, I'm going to be, like, this cowboy going into this battle. And that, that experience, like, it has a lot more in common almost with, like, even though it's not technically an RPG in that sense, it almost has more in common with, like, traditional role-playing where the experience of playing D&D or another game is, like, you know the, the point isn't obviously like you killed a bunch of orcs or kobolds or something it's that you had your personal experience with it and and you know you're, you can make anything uh, a personal narrative that's often like i think of dwarf fortress you know that's like often cited as like one of the most amazing games of all time and one of the reasons isn't just because it's mechanically interesting it's because people say like that one time where like this very specific thing happened to me, and like I this dwarf went into this cave and then he drowned, but then his family survived and we built like a, a a palace in his honor. Like that all that doesn't come from the game telling you that those things are happening. That's just from players building their own stories. And so I think it is you know it, it's funny that we're always like at, the more AAA we get, the more instincts there are for this kind of like really really intense top heavy kind of narrative and sometimes you can get your red dead redemptions where it, it comes off really polished and clean looking but i'm i'm definitely maybe you're not throwing shade but i'm throwing shade that like that i i'm at a point where i'm kind of tired of you know that games can clearly do other things and it's clearly being thought of in different indie spaces and other companies so I, i'm i really take your point and you're just making me. I'm going to go play Void Bastards after this <laughs> You're gonna because do it I'm us, so interested. The I'm I'm so interested in and in just exploring that dynamic because I think that's a really, it's a really interesting way of looking at narrative design.
2: I mean, I would like to get to a place where people understand, and game critics too, that narrative narrative design is just about systems, and it's more and more about systems these days than it is about. I mean, every time someone says the term narrative design, I think in their brains is just saying she writes the script. And I think one of the larger problems is that that just means that people think that they could get a writer in and their story Mm -hmm. will be good. And that's not true. Um, You need to think about what the systems of your game are saying. So for example, the systems of the game in Mass Effect is a system of colonialism, right? You're going planet Mm -hmm. to planet and you're basically taking, you know, destroying everything that lives there, and you're mm-hmm. taking all the resources. And that's mm-hmm. that's a colonial narrative. And that is something that if you're a narrative designer, you're constantly thinking about because you're like, I don't want to be working on a game of <laughs> colonial I, resource I stealing, right? You're thinking about, like, how do I mitigate how freaking evil the system is in this game? You yeah. know, and the, one of the reasons, for example, that, like, you know, doom is all about murdering aliens that are violent and horrible towards you is just to kind of justify the fact that you are eliminating all of them, right? And so yeah, yeah. a lot of the time you're thinking in terms of that narrative system where you're like, okay. And so that's why in Void Bastards, you only play um, escaped, uh, incarcerated-like people, basically, and yeah. because you're always on their side. You want them to escape. You want them to get away. These are people who are on a prison ship and you have to like get them out of there. And that's the main, you understand innately like that is what you're doing there. Um, So a lot of these kind of narrative systems kind of designs are, you know, you constantly have to think about the big picture of what they're saying to you as a player um, because you innately know by playing the game, like, whose side you're on and what it's doing, um, whereas Mass Effect, they try their best to kind of, I guess, gloss over what that really means systemically, um, it, it, you know, it has to be, it can't be like Star Trek, where you're, like, gently going there and helping people out if you can, like, it's not always that way, right, um, it has to involve some combat, and you're always making excuses for combat when you when you do narrative design. So it's like such a gift when you get to work on a game that isn't about combat because you can really deeply look at the systems and go, "What we what do we really want it to say?" You know.
1: I think you've convinced me. the The further that we get away from Mass Effect's release, um, at the time, I think that like one of the main plot threads of it was to justify the fact that like a genocide was being done. And now I see that less as an unfortunate consequence of just writing of the time. And now it's like, actually, is that like a subversive criticism of your place in that like um colonial, colonialist fantasy, right? Like that you're contributing to this? Like, is that actually like a framing rather than, oh, I wish this wasn't in there.
2: I mean, I think generally speaking when you're a narrative designer on these large projects you're always thinking about how to subvert lots of expectations um so I would say you know if I'd worked on that game which I didn't I would be always thinking about you know how can I turn this around or make this make the player really reflect on what's happening that's why you get all these like cognitive dissonance like that's why why that's why you get you know or I guess what you would call like ludonarrative dis- dissonance, where it's like. Um, we have essentially- a joke that
1: whenever one of us says that on the show, we um, we make a real <laughs> reverb and a like a weird wavy. So you just uh, you just had that happen I've to just you.
2: Pinged it basically, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, like whenever you get that kind of dissonance in a game, it's. You know, it's usually because the narrative designer has just realized what a horrible excuse of a system this is. Because you can't really, you can't really justify it. You can't, you can't say, you know, this is a, it's a good idea to murder all these people. Like, I mean, the better way to do it is the way that The Witcher do, does it in The Witcher Three, where you like you kill someone because you lose your pamper because someone tries to start a fight with you, and then the next time you ride through that village six of that guy's mates turn up, and they're like, you killed John, you absolute, you know, asshole. And then you're like, well, I am an asshole. I did mm-hmm. kill John, <laughs> so like,
3: you, and then always... you kill
2: all those guys, and then the next time you ride through, <laughs> it's like, the whole village hates you, then you burn their village time. <laughs>
1: heard from uh, narrative designers what have you the writer um, is that there's no system like there's no one system of putting words or what have you into games right like i've heard that a bunch of people just do like google docs um some people use jira or whatever like is it jira i've used jira yeah it's like jira is a whiskey isn't it i mean both of them are important for writers
2: Um, don't defame my, you know, the number mm. one beverage of Scotland, but um, yeah, Jira is like the system of like a bug system, bug logging system, basically. Mm-hmm. You can but use
1: Confluence. No... Hmm. Why? And why Confluence?
2: Confluence is just just it's like a wiki system basically, um, and it's like usually you would store all your game's lore and design documents in there essentially.
1: Hmm. So the the question that I have is that like um do you think that game design would massively benefit from a single system that is easy to use that would be able to collect all of this stuff together do you think it would aid communication or do you think that it's just a consequence of doing business that you know everybody's got their preferred way of doing this and there's no one standard
2: it's because of the proprietary way that software uh is built basically um Um, There is no industry standard, mainly because people don't want to, um, A, share the software they have developed in-house because it may advantage another company or publisher or whatever, right? Um, But also, uh, it does have something to do with how undervalued uh, writing is in the industry. Um, It does have a little bit of something to do with that. Like, why would we bother... (laughs) Making that right, but the third thing is um, so that a lot of the prestige games are linear narrative, so you do just write a script in final draft and then submit it, um, and then that gets put in the game like that. But what's really interesting, I think, is that if you were to say to a games company, hey, we have a really robust localization system that could handle branching narrative, Hmm. um, that would be a very appealing prospect as an industry standard. Um, That is something that doesn't currently exist. Um, And localization is a huge, huge problem for uh, every massive games company because, uh, you know, I've never, I don't think I've ever actually worked at a place that does um, very efficient localization uh, because it's, uh, really really difficult to track branching narratives and get the localization company to understand like what they're translating and where the conversation came from um, so uh, yeah like basically the industry standard for localization is a uh, spreadsheet it's like Microsoft Excel right
1: I, I was just gonna say yeah I'd Why? always heard that um, Final Fantasy 7 is notorious for um, it just being one person that did the localization Um, Mm. for the original version of it. And then it was done line by line. So a lot of the context and repeating stuff was missing just because, you know, wherever you put a certain character, it all differ Mm. in context from something else. Uh, This guy are sick. Yeah, yeah, something like (laughs) that. That's the Um, famous line. (laughs) And um, it's, like, notorious for you can tell when, like, this dude just didn't have enough coffee that day, right? Like, just because, like, the the way of writing it is a little bit looser than it otherwise would have been like yeah you know, maybe didn't go the full way of making like a, a pun where there otherwise would be just out of consequence of not having the rest of the context yeah i was
0: gonna say i'm always surprised because i often play i'm, I'm half spanish so I, I always play games in spanish when it's available and i'm always surprised by even like the most big budget games that have gone through the effort of making this localization that they're like they are riddled with typos like riddled with typos errors Mistranslations and and to be honest, I'm almost, I'm not, I think I'm thinking similar to what you said earlier, Kara, that it's not even that I think, oh, these are bad translators because this is kind of like QC, you know? This is just like, this stuff would have been, you know, there's several drafts and this thing probably would have been caught if you had enough time to really like varnish this thing properly. But it kind of seems like they had to really, they didn't have the same time for the Spanish script as they did for the English script, obviously. So uh, I've read a lot, like in Spanish speaking communities, there was a game recently, what was it that I found out? There was a big uh, Spanish patch or a Spanish. I think it was Persona actually. I haven't played it yet. Uh, I was. I'm planning on playing it in, in Spanish. Persona Five. And I remember reading on the forums a bunch of Spanish speakers being like, "Just play it in English. Just play it in English. Don't play the Spanish version." Which I thought, oh, it's such a shame for that. You know, for the effort that was put into that. But I wonder. Did they give if, a reason? Well, Is well, I think it was particularly bad. Or. I think it was this kind of thing of it, it feeling disjointed and it feeling like there, it didn't, it lacked the kind of like cohesion that the English translation probably was given, like it, that attention was given to it. And then there was also a few sort of mis- mistakes that lead to like quests feeling you don't understand what you're supposed to do in them and, and stuff like that. But it just, to me, it makes me think of something like, you know, know like Banderson match was written with like twine, you know, like something like, like it, it, are there ways that people can use these like or wiki like systems that can simplify it so that? when that work is passed on it's not like you don't end up with the final fantasy 7 thing or the you know these these i'm i'm still tweeting devs i'm learning how to use twitter folks and i'm i'm tweeting the the paper uh by what am i saying paper bug fables devs you got you got mistakes in your spanish translation it, it's not good like respond to me we'll fix it <laughs> i'll do some pro bono spanish i'll do for some you. pro bono
1: <laughs> i'll make it pro bueno <laughs> yeah. don't use that as the (laughs) cold bonus content (laughs) bonus
0: content
2: yeah no i i think there's a long way to go on the localization front i mean it's also because you know as you say localization uh, is the very last thing done and mm. usually it's late submitted late. Um, you know they, they've got to do it to a deadline that's like a week and they've got to translate the entire game in a week or something mm. and it in order to go on the disk and you know there's a bunch of stuff like that I remember um, a very very large AAA video game uh, forgetting that the Japanese language would take a lot more disk space <laughs> than they originally planned for. <laughs> they had to delete some of the game in wow. order to fit Japanese on the disc. Oh, my God. So that is how serious languages are. Um, <sighs> so I think... Um, That's just yeah. down to,
1: like, character limit, right? Because in English, yeah. you only need, like, you know, however many it is, and, and then the the numbers, right? And then, like, yeah, it's 4,000 kanji? 4, the yeah it's
2: very large yeah so Mm. it's like they there are three alphabets in japanese so one of them is humongous um so yeah it's it's just uh it's it's the localization uh thing but it's also you know proprietary game software is like a big deal and a lot of uh companies uh they work within that you know they write these programs from scratch for a lot of video games you know uh you know the game might be made in unreal but all of the proprietary systems within Unreal and the tools systems will all be proprietary. Mm. So they will write that for their game franchise specifically. And then, you know, if that, and then then the other thing is that that will become obsolete the next time they pick up another game engine and then write another set of tools on top of that game engine, then that, you know, those tools no, no longer work, the previous ones. So like every single time you make a game, it's almost like reinventing the wheel and it's all to do with the fact that people like shiny graphics and they want to increase how shiny the graphics are each time. So it's just really annoying. However, I have found recently that the open source, uh, branching narrative tool that was used for night in the woods, which is called yarn spinner. It's open source. It's a markup based dialogue branching system. And it is excellent, and it's very like a lot of the markup-based systems I've used previously, including Twine. Um, so basically, what what I what I mean when I say markup-based is just like writing HTML. Essentially, yeah. it's like it's like you tag a word, and then it gives you a branch, um, and it's you know spits out uh, you know a branch visual for you um, mm-hmm. in the game, and so. Yeah, like those things, especially because they're open, this tool specifically is open source and lots of people have access to it. I would hope that something like that might become industry standard. Mm. Again, we don't know yet because it only works with Unity currently and they're working on a UE for an Unreal version of it. So if oh. that happens, we might end up seeing something like Yarn Spinner appear in bigger AAA games. That's
0: but a proprietary exciting. version of Yarn Spinner, presumably.
2: Maybe they'll make a proprietary version I don't know but I would prefer that they didn't because I think yeah. that one of the most important things about twine for example is you can teach it in schools and yeah. universities yeah. um and I think that yarn spinner would be a really great way to showcase your design skills if you wanted to get into narrative design yeah. that would be a wonderful way to showcase like how you understand branches and yeah. how you might write like interesting decisions quote unquote you know so
0: well, I think yeah. it's such an interesting thing, too, because, you know, famously, like, you know, you have, um, was it Sega copyrighted the uh, uh, the arrow in Crazy Taxi, so, like, the, <laughs> the, the directional arrow that points you where you're going, and they, they came hard on uh, Simpsons Hit and Run for using a similar arrow, right? And that's from this whole, we've had many conversations on this channel about IP and copyright law and stuff, but it's from that school of design and of business that is, like, like you said, it's like trade secrets. Like, oh, if we if we let these trade secrets out, then we're like the competition's gonna undercut us. But I don't, I don't very, know, uh, I don't know if I've ever. A one. Well, yeah,
1: of the um, nemesis system actually is now uh, yeah. completely owned by WB, yeah. which yeah. Um, seemed like one of those ones that you really just couldn't patent because it's yeah. less of a. Um, uh, it's far more of a narrative system than it is a technical system, at yeah. least from my perspective. I guess it, you know it, uh, when it comes down to it, it is just all it's all just bloody if statements in it. But um, <laughs> like that, that seemed like the biggest hurdle for corporate ownership of a of a of a concept.
0: That. Well, well, so but so that's what I'm getting at is that there's it's it's another kind of unproven thing to me in the world of sort of like business of saying well no like we need to do this like why else would we copyright things Like obviously we do it because people could steal them from us but like we've, we've seen how open source tools like twine like yarn spinner you know there's been there's there's a lot that can happen when you share tools and allow everyone to participate in creation some of which means like there's more efficiency for people because they can uh build together you know if you look at like open source communities or linux or whatever like you know, it, before Linux was created or before it all kind of took off, there were probably people being like, this is an impossible business model. This will never work. And lo and behold, it does. So it's it's always a shame to me to hear that it's so difficult for those tools to break through because you would think, you know, it, it, would, it would only increase people's ability to make good games and to, you know, just be creative. But we're still kind of in that phase where it's even something like Unity or, or like Unreal, you know, it's good that I think Epic is like, making it available to everyone, but like they're doing it in a very particular way, right? Like it's, it's about bringing you into their kind of like product universe more so than just making tools available to people. So having something that is like pub, the, the public, um, you know, domain or like the, it's for just culture, I think is, is always good.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's not always possible, you know, for some games as well. Like I have to admit, you know, for things like I did the narrative design on, um, the campaign mode for dreams um and so all that the dream story i designed from beginning to end to try and like um sort of make uh everyone's ideas kind of come together in this amazing kind of explosion of different creative modes and like now that i think about it if we try to use yarn like it would have defeated the purpose of dreams right because dreams is a kind of whole platform of tools that um, integrate perfectly with each other Right. right and so Um, The text tool that we used for all of the words and like the choices and the branches in that, that actually uses a proprietary Dreams tool system to be able to connect to like audio events, for Mm -hmm. example, or other things. So we wouldn't have been able to do that because what we wanted to do was create um, a way to make games on a PS4, you know. And so that that itself um, was you know, an idea that we wanted to kind of be able to have someone like me who knows nothing about audio events, for example, really easily connect, like, a word that I had written um, to an audio event and then it would automatically play. Mm-hmm. And that's really powerful because you're, usually in games uh, design and, and, and games programming, you need, like, a whole host of people who have a specialism to be able to do, like, an, a, a really amazing like visual audio event, but with dreams, like you don't need to do that. You could just like, because it's part of the ecosystem and it was all made at the same time, like it all connects to each other. Um, So some, some things obviously like, you know, will not always be, it would always be like cool to like Mm -hmm. use something open source for something. But, um, you know, like I, I did kind of occasionally wish when I was working on dreams that we already had a proprietary branching narrative system. Cause like the bit with the phone call I remember was really, really hard. Um, There's like a bit where you're, where art is on the phone to Layla and he's trying to apologize. And I was like, how do I design an apology scene? Because apologizing is really hard as a human anyway. Like how do I make it look like it's sorry? It seems to
1: be the hardest word.
2: <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, like basically I was kind of figuring out how to design a branching system that would make, sorry, be hard. And, um, the way I did it was eventually I was like, well, in between choices of branching, I want the audio to play of art being like, um, uh, 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 will I, you know, kind of stuff and have it kind of loop. Um, and so you know, like, I, I kind of often wish that I could use something like yarn spinner, but we had to make it integrate with the rest of the project really well. So it was quite hard, but, you know, obviously, like, um, I think in that moment, like, when you're a narrative designer, you just have to, like, make a massive tantrum about it. You're like, I want it to be this good, so you all have to help me, you know?
1: <laughs> I hate the question, like, how do you break into writing? Cause, so I'm not going to ask that one. But the secrets that I do want from you are... Maybe two, what the what do you wish you knew about writing before you started doing it for games?
2: Um I guess I wish that I knew more about game design itself before writing for games because it makes your life so much easier. If you if you figure out what the player does is more important than what the player says from the very beginning of your career in games, mm-hmm. then you will have an easier time. Um that just means that if the game itself isn't very fun to play, people will think that the narrative sucks, no matter how good you are as a writer. Mm-hmm. They will still think that the the narrative sucks if the gameplay isn't good, and that's just the way of it. Like I remember, um, like someone was like, uh, one of the projects I was working on. Like someone was like, what if we got. Um, what if we got Austin on from Dishonored to do the narrative that it would be amazing. And I'm like, no, like the reason that Dishonored is amazing is because it's really fun to play. And the narrative is like the cherry on top. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like the, the lack of uh, a good story is often more to do with what you're actually doing in a game than what people, what characters are saying. Like, you could have the most entertaining scene ever play out in front of you, but it's meaningless unless you get to participate in it in some way, right? So, um, or that's the way it is in games anyway. Um, So I wish I had kind of understood that before I became a narrative designer, because I blame myself a lot of the time for... Like, people being like, well, the story isn't very good here. And it's like, well, it actually might be because there's a robot voice here instead of a voice actor doing the line. That's, like, another thing that happens internally as well is where, like, if you get a robot voice to, like, say your lines, everyone's like, wow, this dialogue is terrible. And you're like, (laughs) well, an actor isn't saying it, so it's not going to sound emotional at all until an actor says it. Mm -hmm. And so, like, a lot of the time, you do end up blaming yourself for stuff that is more, like, production-y things and design things. So yeah, definitely. If you're looking to get into this, I would recommend learning about game design, watching some GDC Vault stuff, like understanding how to construct interesting puzzles, or like how how game affordances work, like how how like performing an action in a game informs you about who characters are.
0: Brilliant,
1: cool, right? That was that was a show. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much to everybody who hung out in this call. Uh, to the Glasshouse Games people, uh, Shay and to CG and thank you so much to Kara as well. Um thank you I for also Ah, oh, honestly a pleasure. Um thank you also to Kit, who's behind the desk. Thank you to Dancy Parks for the music. Uh, if you liked what you just saw, if you could do a subscribe, if you could do a like, if you could tell your friends, and if you if you especially like that. You can give us a couple of quid on Patreon to support mm. what we're doing here, oh, and follow us on Twitch because we're going to play um, Void Bastards. Void Busters, yeah, <laughs> um, we'll do a deep
0: lore Void Bastards stream.
2: I really want to see that because I want to <laughs> see someone like really critique me, like really go in, just be like, "Well, this choice is, you know, this tiny choice that garbage. was made." Mm-hmm. Yeah, garbage. Yeah, we're going to
1: get chibbed in <laughs> on that game. Um, yeah. Cool. We'll speak again soon.